I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If um, you're sitting in the back and didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we've provided one for you. And, and we would um, love for you to use that one. And uh, the invitation is made. If you need a Bible, take that one. We'll, we'll replace it. But we would love for you to have your own. And, but if uh, you just forgot yours, open in that one and follow as I read out of uh, Matthew chapter 3. A very familiar event in the life of Jesus Christ, his baptism. And I would like to read beginning at verse 13 through verse 17. You follow in your copies as I read. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that, oh, that endures forever. In the, um, in the present series in which we find ourselves, which um, is entitled The Star of the Show, one of the, uh, the commentaries or the resources that I'm using is this book. Uh, it's written by G. Campbell Morgan. You may have heard that name. But G. Campbell Morgan wrote this book. It's an old book. Um, and it, it's entitled, I don't know if you can see it back there, but it's entitled The Crises of the Christ. And really, more than half of the book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, his betrayal, um, his arrest, the trial, uh, the sentencing, the, re- the crucifixion, and the resurrection. This book is really uh, dominated by those events. And, and understandably, uh, Campbell Morgan calls those events crises. And, I, and I, as I said, I understand why he would call those crises. Interestingly enough, however, he calls this event, he calls the baptism a crisis. And uh, with all due respect, I, uh, I beg to differ. I, for one, don't think it's Jesus who has the crisis in this event. I think it's John the Baptist who is in a crisis. Maybe, maybe, maybe if not John the Baptist, maybe it's us who is in the crisis. I mean, that, this uh, baptism thing, oh, it, it, just, it tears us up. We, we argue and fight over this baptism thing like nobody's business. I mean, uh, you know, the meaning and the mode and when and all this business. I mean, it just dominates bloggers and, you know, it's, it's, and then throw in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and then we really got a crisis on our hands. So maybe it's us who's got the crisis, but I don't think it's Jesus. Somebody's got a crisis here, but it's not Jesus. 
And um, what I want to do is show you the crisis and then show you how it was addressed. And then to do that, I want to organize my thoughts on around three headings. The baptizer, the baptized, and then others who participated. Those are, those are the three sections of what we want to talk about today. So let's take it for, let's look first at the, the baptizer. That, of course, would be John the Baptist. We, um, we don't want to overlook this guy and, and hasten beyond him because really, uh, he's a very significant creature, a person. He, um, Jesus says, uh, among those born among men, he, none of one is greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus thinks very highly of him. Uh, I can say that with his arrival onto the scene, uh, 400 years of prophetic silence ended. There was a, there was a, a silence. There, the, the heavens, the heaven was brass since Malachi, the end of Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist. That 400 years, what is called the intertestamental period, that 400 years, nothing had been said, nothing had been heard from heaven. And with that, with the arrival of John the Baptist, that ends. That is, that, that silence ends. Because God begins to do things very overtly with the arrival of John the Baptist. And John causes quite a ruckus, quite a commotion, uh, swirled around this, this, this new prophet in town, and it had nothing to do with his diet or how he dressed. You remember, you remember his diet? I mean, he ate locusts. Um, and then, and he dressed in camel's hair, like, you know, just like, just like Elijah. I mean, that's, uh, that's the, the last one who ate locusts and dressed in camel's hair was a guy named Elijah. So John the Baptist arrives on the scene dressed like that, eating the same thing. But the commotion, the furor, the, the ruckus, the stir had nothing to do with how he was dressed or what he ate. It had to do with his baptism. John the Baptist was, as you know, baptizing all the people around Jerusalem. And that caused quite a stir. And that's important. If you'll hold on, you'll, you'll see why it's important. But guys, it caused quite a stir that he was calling Jerusalem and all the people around it to come out and be baptized by him. You, you, um, you might know that, um, the, 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 the point, the message of, of John's baptism was the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But don't take my word for it. Uh, it's right here in Mark chapter 1 verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The, the point of John's baptism was repentance for sin. Now, that caused quite a commotion. John didn't invent baptism. Baptisms had been around long before John the Baptist. I mean, you can go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 4, and it talks about all the rituals of baptism in Judaism. But primarily, when, 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 when Israel thought of baptism, she thought of what's called proselyte baptism. 
It was a baptism that was designed for Gentiles. And everybody knew how much Gentiles uh, needed forgiveness of sin. Why, sure, they need to be baptized. I mean, they need a bath. They're filthy spiritually. They're, 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 they're just wicked folks. And, and so they had this baptism called a proselyte baptism. And, and Judaism knew all about that. But John the Baptist, he wasn't calling Gentiles to be baptized. He was calling Israel to be baptized. He was calling all of the surrounding communities around Jerusalem to come out and be baptized. And that, that caused quite a ruckus. And that's not the crisis that I want to show you, but that's the ruckus. That's the commotion. That's the stir. That's the furor that, uh, that John the Baptist was asking Jews to be baptized. Oh, listen, it's fine if you want to baptize Gentiles. You go right ahead. We're very happy for you to baptize Gentiles. But uh, you're asking Jews to be baptized? And your baptism has something to do with forgiveness of sin? Uh -uh, Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's going to cause quite a problem for you, John the Baptist. The scandal of John the Baptist was that he was saying to Israel, he was saying to Judaism, that they needed Repentance for their forgiveness of sins. You can say that to a Gentile, John. You can get away with it. But you can't, don't be saying that to Israel. Don't be saying that to us Jews. Now again, guys, that's still not the crisis that I'm talking about. That's the commotion. But um, let me tell you about the crisis. On this particular day that that we just read about in in Matthew chapter 3, On the day that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. On this day, John is out there doing his thing at the River Jordan and and he sees Jesus headed his way. I I know that, and you you can find out too, from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Uh, John has his own uh, rendition of this baptism. And while John is baptizing all these other people from Jerusalem, he sees Jesus coming towards him. And John the Baptist says, when he sees Jesus coming towards him, he says, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, let me me tell you this story. This is just as an aside. It doesn't have much to do with anything. But there is a story that's told about um, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, that um, one Saturday morning he went over to the sanctuary because it had been refurbished and they were about to open it uh, the next day. He was going to open the new sanctuary the next day. And so Spurgeon goes over on a Saturday to test the acoustics. And so he gets behind the pulpit and he, and testing the acoustics, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And there was a workman up in the balcony. And he was so struck with those words. He came down from the balcony, pursued Spurgeon, and um, prayed to receive Christ as a result of just hearing that. But anyway, back to the story. John the Baptist is baptizing. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, take a listen. And, and Jesus is headed towards him. Now, um, guys, do you remember, you remember way back in Genesis 22? Way back, long millennia before this event, 
God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him to a mount that I'm going to tell you about, and I want you to sacrifice him. Remember that? Genesis 22. And so Abraham obeys, takes his son, is headed off to the Mount of Moriah. And uh, as they're trudging up the hill, the little, let's call him eight-year-old Isaac, Isaac looks up at his daddy and he says, Daddy, I see the wood and I see the fire. And I know you got a knife in your pocket, but where's the lamb? And millennia later, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, there he is. You wanted the lamb. There he is. Isaac turns to his son. I mean, Abraham turns to his son in Genesis 22. And he says, now, son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And he just has. This one, the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world that John is about to baptize. But within minutes of having said that, but within minutes of having said, behold, the lamb of God taketh away. But within minutes of saying that, Jesus comes to John the Baptist and says, John, I want you to baptize me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the crisis. Why? Why do you want, you, you want me to baptize? I, I can't baptize you, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. Now, that's the crisis I'm talking about, guys. And, it, and it's in the text. John was reluctant. I don't want to baptize. You ought to be baptizing me. What's going on here? I, you know, I can't do this. Now, guys, I want to suggest to you that John's crisis is really, is, you see it, it's twofold. You can see his crisis in, at two levels, two different levels. First of all, his crisis is theological. His second, the second level or the second part of the crisis is purely practical. It's purely ethical. Let me show you first his theological crisis, the, the theological dimension to his crisis. Now, guys, remember, baptism, what John was doing, concerned people's sin. And Jesus doesn't have any sin. How, how am I supposed to baptize him? I tell you what, Jesus, how about this? Why don't you baptize me? John the Baptist is in a crisis, and the only way he gets out of that crisis is because Jesus says something to him that helps him. And it's in verse 15. And guys, verse 15 is really the heart and soul of the text. It, it, it tells you about the nature of this event. But it also helps John get through his crisis. Look at it. It's verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All right, look at it, guys. First of all, he says, John, let it be so now. Now, listen, John, I haven't got time to explain everything to you now. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Just let it be so now. In this instance, John, make what is for you an exception. It's not an exception, but for you, I understand... Make an exception. I want you to baptize me. You see, guys, those little words, let it be so now, they recognize the soundness and the accuracy of John's argument. His reluctance is understandable. You're right, John. It is not needed. But for now, 
Something else is going on, John, that you don't understand. I know you don't understand it, but you'll understand it later. I can just give you a bit of an explanation right now. Go ahead and do it because it will be fulfilling all righteousness. It has to do, John, with fulfilling righteousness, which, guys, is the meaning of this event. Now, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says what we're going to do here is we're going to, we're fulfilling righteousness. Guys, um, <clears throat> the, the whole idea of what, um, of John being reluctant to do what it is that he's doing, Jesus recognizes the legitimacy of his reluctance. Yes, John, I know you're reluctant, but we're going to fulfill righteousness. Baptism was bound up with the forgiveness of sin. And there is no personal sin in Jesus involved in Jesus' case. Okay, what's going on? Well, what's going on is righteousness is being fulfilled. Now, wake up. Stay with me, guys. Let me explain that. For Jesus Christ to be my righteousness... He has to do, he has to meet every requirement, every demand that God had made upon me. Whatever Israel needed for him to do, he was going to have to do it for her. Whatever Jimmy Young needed to satisfy God's righteous demands, he is, that is, Jesus is going to have to do it for me. In my place. This baptism is a deliberate, voluntary identification of himself, that is of Jesus, with his people who are sinful. He's not, but they are. This is his first step taken publicly in the direction of bearing the sins of his people. This, this process of lifting the sins of his people off his people and placing them on himself begins here in Matthew chapter 3 at his baptism. This is, yes, the end of his private life and the commencement of his public ministry. But most people, you can read commentaries, and that's all they'll do with this text. They'll simply say, well, this is the end of his private life, he begins his public life here. Gang, it's far more than that. It is the commencement of his public, voluntary, mediatorial, substitutionary, sin-bearing for his people. It's huge, guys. I love to say those words. I'm going to say them again. It is the beginning, in a public way, of his voluntary, mediatorial, substitutionary sin-bearing for his people. That's what that fulfilling all righteousness means. Now, guys, because this is so important, I'm going to do my best to make it as clear as I can make it. I want to, I want to use two illustrations just to try and illustrate what I just said. That is, that this is the voluntary, mediatorial, substitutionary sin-bearing of Jesus Christ for his people. I want to give you a, 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 an illustration from out of the Bible and then one from literature. Stay with me. 
Gang, um, you know the name Saul, don't you? Saul is the one who became Paul and ultimately wrote the, the third of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. You know, well, his, first, his name was Saul, you know that. Well, he was uh, converted on the road to Damascus. I think you remember that. Um, he um, was on his way to Damascus. He had gotten permission from the bigwigs in Jerusalem. He was going to go to Damascus. He was going to arrest some Christians, put them in jail, and persecute them. So on his way to Damascus, he is knocked down to the ground by this shaft of light that comes from heaven, knocks him to the ground, and then a voice speaks, and the voice is Jesus's. And Jesus says this, Acts 9-4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now tell me, guys, is Saul actually persecuting Jesus? Yes, because, ladies and gentlemen, there is such a close connection, such an intimate association, such an identity, such an, a, a, a union between Jesus Christ and his people, that when you touch his people, you touch him. And that identity, that close association, that relationship... That intimacy, that union began in a public way here at his baptism. That's what verse 15 means. Let me give you another illustration. Again, just trying, because this is so critically important to understand the gospel, guys. I wonder how many of you have read this novel um, this is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It's a good novel, but if you haven't read it, I'm about to ruin it for you. But um, this is a, um, The Tale of Two Cities. This is the, book, the novel that starts out uh, very famously. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's the one that closes with almost as famous a line. It says, uh, it's a far, far better thing that, I've done than I, that I do than I've ever done before. Those are famous lines from literature, ladies and gentlemen, because of this book. This is Charles Dickens. Uh, the, the two cities, of course, was London and Paris. It was the best of times in London. It was the worst of times in Paris because the French Revolution, uh, the, there was years leading up to the French Revolution. Well, there are, there are three major characters in this novel. Actually, there's a fourth, Madame Defarge. <laughs> She's kind of the sinister, the one that knits people's names and they go to the guillotine and all that. Well, anyway, but there are three major characters in this, in this novel. One is Lucy Manette. The other is Charles Darnay, and the other is Sidney Carton. The two men, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, are both in love with Lucy Manette. And uh, ultimately, Lucy chooses Charles over Sidney. Lucy marries Charles Darnay, and they have a baby. Well, in the twists and the, uh, the twists and the turns of the plot, Charles Darnay ends up over in France. He gets arrested and accused of being uh, an opponent of the revolution. He's, uh, he's jailed and he's, sent, he's tried and jailed and sentenced to the guillotine. That's the husband and the father of the, the husband of Lucy and, their, and the father of the, of the child. Um, when when Sidney Carton hears of what's happened, he gets his way, and I forget exactly how he does that, but he, he, he gets himself inside the prison and finds Charles Darnay. He sits Charles Darnay down and he says, take off your boots. Give me your boots and take my boots. He says, take off your clothes and give me your clothes and take my clothes. 
There's even a ribbon in Charles Darnay's hair. I guess he ran a ponytail, but he says, give me that ribbon out of your hair. I'm going to put it in my hair. And, um, uh, and then he explains what he's doing. And then he somehow drugs uh, Charles Darnay with some kind of ether. And he is temporarily unconscious. And then they put him in a bag and then get him out of the jail. And so what, what Sidney Carton is doing is, is arranging things so that he will be considered Charles Darnay and he will go to the guillotine for him. And so as this is all transpiring, they're standing in a line that heads to the guillotine. A little, a young woman who's a seamstress figures out what's going on. And she says to Sidney Carton, who is now Charles Darnay, she says to Sidney Carton, are you dying for him? And he says, yes. And she is so overcome. She is so overtaken by what she's seen take place. And she says, I am so afraid of the guillotine. It would help. Would you allow me to hold your brave hand as we go to the guillotine? And um, as a result of seeing that Sidney Carton is, has become Charles Darnay and has substituted himself for Charles Darnay, this young woman is, is, is reformed. She's changed in her dinner and is quieted as she faces the guillotine. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is my Sidney Carton. He's taken my clothes. He's taken my shoes. He took the ribbon out of my hair. And he died in my place. And that begins in a public way. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Again, that's the theological dimension of the crisis. There's another dimension that I want you to see. It's, it's, it's the ethical, it's the, um, it's the practical dimension of the, of the situation. And, and, and it's one, guys, that we share with John the Baptist quite frequently. And it is this. Jesus turns to John the Baptist and he says, in essence, Will you obey me, John the Baptist, without having all your questions answered? John. Will you do what Jesus asks you to do, even though you don't understand all of the ins and the outs of your circumstance? Will you obey, even though there are questions that you cannot answer? Guys, when I was in college, and I... I, I hope you don't mind me drawing from my own life. I'm, it's the one I know the best. When I was in college, I was in college in the 60s, the late 60s, and it was during the Vietnam War. And I think this is true. I'm not sure about this, but I think it was required back then that you be in ROTC. And I was in ROTC. I, uh, I was in Air Force ROTC. I thought the uniforms were prettier. And so I, um, I joined up with the Air Force ROTC, and, and then at the end of two years, you have to make your determination as you're, if you're going to go on. And I, I decided to go on. I took the AFOQT test. Some of you may have taken that test. It's the Air Force Officers Qualifying Test, and I took the test and passed it. I was going to be a jet jockey, and uh, the friendly, I was going to fly the friendly skies of Hanoi. 
And I was looking forward to it, flying something mean and big and fast and, and powerful. Um, I took my oath of office. I was a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. I had my bars, um, had my uniforms, and was ready, waiting, you know, send me to Hanoi. And in that process, I got medically disqualified. I was, I was rubbed out before I really even got going. I was, uh, I was 4F'd. I was taken out of the Air Force and given a 4F. They told me I had bad knees. But that really, that's really not that. Long before that ever happened, it was in my junior year. And um, there was a parade in which the, our wing, that's what they call it, the wing, you know, the uh, ROTC wing, uh, we were supposed to march in this parade. And it was in November, and I forget, maybe it was a Thanksgiving, I forget what kind of parade it was, but we were supposed to march in this parade. And so uh, we all were supposed to put on our, our uniforms and show up for the parade. And, and so I did, and, and I arrived to the place we were supposed to come, and there were three buses that were going to take us downtown where the parade began. And, and there, were, uh, there were two buses that the, that the cadets, that's what we were, I was a cadet major, uh, I was supposed to get into these buses, and they were going to take us down there. And there was another bus, and it was for the angel flight. Now, you know what an angel flight is? I mean, guys, if you don't know, angel flight was the girls. And I, to this day, I do not know what function uh, the angel flight played. I don't know what they did, but I can tell you this. They made everything a whole lot cuter. They had these cute little outfits, little blue things with skirts, and they were just cute as they could be. Anyway, so that we were all about to get on the bus, and, and uh, the, the, I, I was going to get on the bus with the girls. I didn't want to be with the guys. I, you know, get, let, me, let me ride with the girls. They're a whole lot cuter than those guys. Let me go. So I was getting on that bus, and the guy's in charge. I certainly wasn't the officer in charge, but the guy who was in charge was a guy by the name of Rusty Gregory. And Rusty was a friend of mine. He, he, was, uh, he was on golf scholarship, and, and um, Rusty came over to me and said, uh, Jimmy, you can't get on that bus. Get on that bus. I said, I don't want to get on that bus. I want to get on this bus. He said, no, 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 you got to get on that bus. I said, give me one good reason why I should get on that bus. What's the difference? Why can't I get on that bus with the girls? I would just give me one. So he took the next three or four minutes of his life to explain to me and give me good, sound, solid reasons as to why I've got to get on that bus and not that bus. And when he got finished, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to obey because I see all of the good reasons as to why I should get on that bus and not that bus. Ladies and gentlemen, can you obey Jesus Christ without him having to explain all of your questions to your satisfaction? Because there are going to be hundreds of times when you're going to be asked to. Well, why can't I get a divorce? I'm so unhappy. Because Jesus won't let you. Is that enough? Will you obey him without him having to explain all of your questions to your satisfaction? Because, ladies and gentlemen, what it comes down to is will I, can I trust what he said? part of the crisis, guys. The crisis that John has. Will I obey when I'm confused? Will you? One more thing real quick and I'm done. John and Jesus are not the only two involved in this, in this event. There's two other people or two other persons that are there. 
Um, God the Son, God's God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are both there. John, Jesus, God the Father, and God the Son. It's God speaks and the Holy Spirit descends. The whole Trinity is on board for this public commencement of redemption. Because redemption, ladies and gentlemen, is a Trinitarian act. The Father has a role, the Son has a role, and the Holy Spirit has a role. I understand that, that the Trinity is admittedly a very difficult subject. It overloads our mental circuitry. You know, uh, one God, three persons, the unity and diversity, no more oneness than threeness, no more threeness than oneness. Yes, 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 I know. I know it's complex. But, but just think about this. If you were going to create a, a doctrine of God, do you think you'd create this one? Do you think you could create this one? Guys, it's just, in my mind, one more proof of the divine origin of this set of facts that we call Christianity. Christianity, guys, will never be able to compete with man-made religion. Because man-made religions don't insist on the facts. Christianity does. And so in this event, the Father greets the Son. The Spirit covers the Son as this public phase of redemption is unveiled. Guys, there are three times in the New Testament where it is recorded that God, the Father, speaks audibly. One is here. The second is the transfiguration. And the third one is in John chapter 12, verse 28, where he, <coughs> where Jesus and the Father are discussing his death. Jesus says, my hour has come, Father, I'm ready to glorify you. Will you? And, and God speaks because they're discussing the crucifixion. He's only hours away. Do you know what Jesus calls that event that he's discussing with his Father? <laughs> he calls it a baptism. After this one, he's awaiting another one. And sin will be its focus, just like sin was the focus of this one. <clears throat> Here, Jesus takes sin on himself. And later, at the other baptism, he'll pay for it. This earthly public ministry begins with a baptism, and it concludes with a baptism. And the focus of both of them are sin, mine, and yours. See, guys, uh, what I really want you to see that his baptism is far, far more than a commencement of his public ministry. It is that. But it is a consecration to death, to the death that awaited him. And that death was necessary if my sin is ever to be paid for. My Sidney Carton... 
substituted himself in my place and then goes to the guillotine of divine justice. And it's there that he died in my place. And my friends, when you get that, when that becomes beautiful to you, it will change you just like it changed the young woman who said, could I hold your brave hand as we go through this terrible, terrible time? When she understood substitution, it changed her. And when we get it, when we understand substitution, it'll change us too. That substitution began in a public way. Here in Matthew 3, the star of the show moves on to center stage and the redemptive concert begins in earnest. That's what this is about. Our Father, I pray that you will show your people the beauty of redemption. Give us, give us more and more glimpses of the great beauty of what has been performed in our place and in our stead. Show us again and again, Lord, what it means to be blood-bought in, in, in the hopes that it will change us more into, the conform, into conformity with Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.